Um, and what that means is that God's grace is the single most important thing in life. Uh, and it's something that we're prone to forget about, right? Like, like I said, you're never so bad you're beyond the reach of God's grace. We're prone to think that we can get to a place where not even God can love us. But also said, if you're never so good, you're beyond the need of God's grace. We're also prone to think that if we're just good enough, then we won't need God. What we're going to remind ourselves of every week at RUF is that God's grace is of central importance. We want you to leave here every week knowing that your deepest need is for God to be kind to you in Jesus. And thank God he is kind to you in Jesus. And this semester we've been going through a series called The Storyteller, and it's a series on the parables of Jesus. And the parables are just stories that Jesus told. They're stories with a point. And these stories often leave us more frustrated than feeling kind of the warm fuzzies inside, uh, because Jesus knows that there are things that we think we know that we need to be shaken out of. And a lot of times that's what Jesus is doing in these stories. And so this week we're going to be looking at a parable called the, the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. Uh, so do you have a moment in a movie or a show that will always make you cry? Like always. Uh, I do. Uh, predictably, it is in The Office. If you've been to RUF more than once, uh, you know that about me. I love The Office. Uh, but it's in The Office Season 9, which if you watch The Office, Season 9 is kind of iffy, but it has some good moments. And this is, this is one such moment. And it's centered around Jim and Pam. Um, and if you've seen the show, if you haven't, Jim and Pam are like the heartbeat of the show. Like without them, really, the show isn't that compelling. Uh, and Jim and Pam are like these, they start as friends. She's engaged to someone else. Jim is like so clearly in love with her. And there's kind of this will they, won't they kind of mentality going on the first couple seasons. And then eventually, oh man, somebody hasn't seen The Office. This is going to be a spoiler alert. Whatever, it's fine. Um, eventually, they do end up getting together. Sorry, Lauren, they do if you haven't seen that. They end up getting together, and they uh, it's kind of supposed to be this like kind of happy ever after mentality. They get together, they have kids. Uh, and then in season nine, they start to have conflict. Jim says that he's going to take this job in Philadelphia. It's a dream job for him. And so he takes this job, and then as soon as he gets there, it kind of becomes apparent that Pam is not really on board. Uh, and Pam and him have this conversation where basically it comes down to you can either have this job or you can have me. And Jim ends up choosing her. And so he says no to this job. I mean, it's his dream job. He says no to it. And, and eventually she starts to kind of feel bad about it. And she starts to have some doubts. And she says to Jim in season nine, she says, I'm afraid I'm not enough for you. I'm afraid I'm not enough for you. I'm afraid you're going to resent me for you not taking this job, for me making you say no to this job. And Jim, kind of in this amazing romantic gesture, he makes this video with the help of the, the crew that's been filming this documentary the whole time. And it just documents their entire story. And he shows it to her, and I mean, it's like gut-wrenching. Shows it to her, it's so beautiful. And then as soon as she ends the video, he comes up to her and he says, not enough for me, you are everything. You are everything. And like, man, it like gets me emotional just thinking about it, right? Like every time Molly and I are watching that, like we just look at each other and we're both ugly crying. 
I remember I told myself I wasn't going to cry. It's like we totally were every single time. We knew we were going to cry. Why does this hit so close to home? Like, why is this so, like, just emotional for us? I think it's because we all long to be told this. We all want someone to look at us, to know us, and to say, you are everything. We long for approval. We long to be told that we're okay. I think this is why we work so hard at school. This is why we work so hard to get the grades, uh, to eventually get the job, and then to finally be told that we're doing enough so that we can rest. This is why we spend so much time on social media. This is why uh, we'll post a picture and then we'll open up Instagram like 10 times within the next three minutes to make sure people like it. Or if you're anything like me, you'll post like a snarky comment on something and then you'll check back to see how many likes you get on it. And if you get a lot, you feel really good about yourself. If you get none, you feel terrible about yourself. This is why we spend so much time and energy trying to find a romantic relationship. Because we want to find someone who's going to give us that unconditional approval that we so desperately long for. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible actually says that we are made for this sort of approval. That we're made to be approved of. That we're not supposed to be insecure. That we're not supposed to be longing for approval. We're supposed to have it. You see, in the beginning of the Bible, God created Adam and Eve. And he said to them that they were very good. Can you imagine what that felt like? To have the God of the universe look at you and say, you are very good. That's what we were created for. We were created to, to know that we are very good, to live in relationship with God, to have God heartily approve of us. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them meaningful work to do, and he provided for every single thing that they needed. And yet this relationship was ruptured when sin entered the world. And the entrance of sin into the world left us all with a longing for approval that could never be satisfied. I've heard someone refer to it as this longing for approval. It left us as hungry ghosts, constantly hungering, but never able to be filled. We're so hungry for approval. And the story we're looking at today speaks to this longing for approval. Uh, before recounting this story, Luke tells us a little bit about the audience that Jesus was speaking to. He says in verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And this word righteous, uh, it sounds very religious. It is. Uh, but the word righteous, it, it just means just or good or, or worthy of approval. So Jesus is telling this story to people who have a plan to get the approval that they were designed for. They have a plan to get the approval that they so desperately long for. So as we look at this story, we're going to ask this question, where do we turn for the approval we long for? Where do we turn for the approval we long for? And as we look at this story, we're going to see two different people who represent two different places that we turn. One way leads to condemnation, and the other way leads to lasting approval. So let's pray, and we can go ahead and get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you that you speak clearly. We thank you that you gave us uh, these stories. And I pray, Lord, for us as we are um, here on a Thursday night, many of us might be tired um, and just really trying to get through this week. I pray that you would meet us and that you would show us uh, your kindness. 
to us in Jesus. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so where do we turn for the approval we long for? If you would look with me to verse 10. Jesus begins this story by saying, Two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So we've got a Pharisee and a tax collector. So let's look at the Pharisee. Uh, when you hear Pharisee, uh, what comes to mind? I imagine it's uh, not a good association. We've already talked about Pharisees thus far this semester. Uh, when we hear Pharisee, we might think someone who is like overly zealous, maybe a little bit of a try-hard. Don't be a try-hard. Nobody likes that. We might think of someone who's a, a hypocrite. And the reason we think this is because Jesus spends a lot of time actually calling the Pharisees that. But the way that we think about these, we have the benefit of having the Gospels for thousands of years and, and learning what Jesus calls these people. For the original audience, the people who, who actually this was written to, when they heard Pharisee, they would have thought, good person. They would have thought someone who was solid. The Pharisees were this uh, Jewish religious group, and they advocated in all of life obedience to the Bible. Like, they were top-notch, and they were good at it. Like, the Pharisee would be the type of person that if they come to your rush party, they are getting a bit. Like, for sure. If they come to your rush party, they're getting a bit. They're the type of person that not only are they moral, not only, like, they're the total package. They can carry on a conversation. They're a good person to have around. So how does this Pharisee pray? It says in verse 11 that the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's a pretty direct, bold prayer. He heads to the temple, the place where God is worshipped, and he talks about himself. He says, first of all, I thank you I'm not like other men. And to be fair, he's actually right. He's a super good guy. He's not an extortioner. That just means robber. He's not unjust. He's not an adulterer. And he's definitely not like the tax collector. It's a good thing not to steal. It's a good thing to live a just life. It's a good thing to be faithful in marriage. And it's a good thing not to be a tax collector, as we will see later on. All of these things are good. This is a morally good man. A man who lives a life that would have been very, everyone would have approved of. But then we see in verse 12, not only is he a morally good man, he says that he fasts twice a week. He gives tithes of all that he gets. Uh, so fasting, I mean, it's something that we've, we've still heard of. It's right, like we're going food or something like that in order to draw closer to God. In the Old Testament, as far as we know, there's actually only one mandated fast every year. So a normal Jewish person would have fasted at least one time a year. And this guy's like, I do it twice a week. And not only that, he gives tithes of everything that he gives. So he gives 10% of everything that he has to the temple. And, and he, like the Pharisees were known for being very like scrupulous about this. They would tithe like their herbs and their spices, all of their stuff. This is not only a morally good man, this is a deeply religious man. And even more than that, like he is aware of it. You see that in his prayer. He's deeply religious, he's morally good, and he knows it. So what's the verdict on this man? 
Jesus gives us a verdict. He says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, who we're about to hear about later, went down to his house justified rather than the other. So the good man is not approved of at the end of this story. The Pharisee doesn't go home justified. What, what, what does it mean to be justified? To be justified, it means to be approved. It means for God to, to put his stamp of approval on you. And what we see here is that this morally good man, this religious man, is not approved of. Why? I think it's pretty obvious if you read back through his prayer. I mean, all he does is he talks about himself. He thinks that the approval that he longs for is going to come from his record. His prayer is filled with all the things he isn't and all the things he is. It's just full of comparison. Again and again, he is looking to his own goodness to give him the approval that he longs for. So where do we look for the approval that we long for? Like this Pharisee, we can look to our own goodness. We can look to our own goodness. But how do you respond to the fact that this Pharisee is condemned? For the original audience, this would have been really shocking, right? Because the Pharisees were good guys. But for us, I think culturally, when we hear something about the Pharisee being condemned, we're like, that is delicious. I am so glad that guy got what was coming to him. Like there's something in us that's like, oh, good riddance. Like self-righteousness is the worst. Like I do not want to see this guy get in. And Jesus, you are right to hate that guy. Because he's terrible. I'm glad Jesus knocked him down a few pegs. Could it be that we, like to ourselves, were thinking something like this? I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, judgmental, self-righteous, and a jerk, not like this Pharisee. Who do we sound like? You see, in telling us this story, Jesus isn't telling us about what's wrong with the world. He's telling us about what's wrong with us. What's wrong with us? You see, we all, like this Pharisee, we look for approval in our own goodness. And in so doing, we end up looking down on others, just like this Pharisee. So what are some ways that we do that? I think there are a lot of ways. You don't have to look far. I mean, think about politics. How many times do you find yourself saying, like, the problem in the world is blank? Right? Maybe it's, for you, maybe it's the left. Those dang leftists. Or maybe it's the right. Like, ugh, those Trump supporters. Or maybe it's boomers. Those old people, please. Or maybe it's the snowflakes. Maybe you're one of those people that, like, hates everyone in your generation and calls them snowflakes. Or maybe it's the social justice warriors. Right? Underneath this is this, this feeling that if only people could be just like me, all of the world's problems would be solved. Or maybe think about a big one that we're all thinking about on campus is, is COVID, right? How many times have you heard that the reason we're going to get kicked off campus is X demographic, right? Like blame it on the Greeks. Blame it on all the people who are gathering together. Like there's a feeling that like, I, I saw an Instagram post from a, from a different university and it said, if you're going to a party this weekend, you're a bad person. What? Like, how judgmental. We constantly are convincing ourselves that we're good people based on what we do and what we don't do. And we think, like, okay, you see someone walking around campus not wearing a mask a little bit too close to someone, it's like, oh, must be nice. 
I wish I didn't care about other people like you. If only people could be like me. You see, in all these things, we are every bit as self-righteous as this Pharisee. We might not be these religious zealots from 2,000 years ago, but we find things to be like that with. What Jesus is telling us is that this sort of comparison, this sort of lifting ourselves up against others, is not going to give us the approval that we long for. In fact, it's actually going to lead to condemnation. So we can look to our goodness, and it will lead to condemnation. So where else do we turn for the approval that we long for? Look with me to the second half of this parable. In verse 13, we start to hear about a tax collector. And when you hear tax collector for us, maybe we think like the guy's boring, like he's an accountant or something. Sorry to my accounting majors out there. Um, we just think that maybe this is just a normal run-of-the-mill guy. But actually for this context, they would have hated tax collectors. Tax collectors would have been uh, guys that were hired by the Roman government to basically tax all of their friends and family. Uh, so the word for tax collectors in the New Testament, it literally means gold farmer, like someone who farms other people's goals in order to line their own pockets. This would have been a hated man. He would have been seen as a traitor. In fact, like a couple chapters after this story, Jesus tells uh, a story, uh, or there's a story of Jesus' interaction with a guy named Zacchaeus. Maybe you remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And when Jesus singles him out and starts talking to him, everyone in the crowd, it says that they grumbled. They grumbled because they hated this man. The tax collector would have been viewed as a bad man. So how does this bad man pray? We see in verse 13, we see his posture. It says, he was standing far off. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his chest. Beating your chest in this time, it wouldn't have been like, when I hear beating your chest, I'm thinking like LeBron James has just sunk a game winner three. It's, that's not what it was. It would have been a sign of contrition. It was a sign of, I am the worst. This man is convicted about something. And we see this conviction in the prayer itself. He says this short prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Whereas the Pharisee had this long undulating prayer talking about all the things that he was, this man prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's actually even stronger than that. He doesn't say a sinner. In fact, he actually says the sinner. The Pharisee was spending all of his time like comparing himself to other people. And this man is only comparing himself to God. He says, before God, I am the sinner. He acknowledges his utter bankruptcy before God, and he begs him for mercy. He begs him to make, to make atonement for him, to send a substitute. So how does God respond to this bad man's short prayer? We see in verse 14 that this tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. So Jesus tells us that this bad man goes home approved of and not the good man. What is Jesus telling us here? He's telling us something about his kingdom. We see it in verse 14 at the end. It says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that might be one of those things you, you may have heard it a bunch of times. It just goes in one ear and out the other, but it's actually really radical. It's an upside down kingdom. 
The person who acknowledges that they don't get it is the one who is going to get it eventually. The person who admits that they're dead is the one who's going to be alive. The person who faces their sorrow is going to be the one that finds lasting happiness. That's what Jesus is saying that his kingdom is. It's counterintuitive. I mean, think about it for a second. How do you become a good like, engineer, for instance? Uh, you start out in high school with an interest in engineering. You might have taken like an engineering class or something in your high school. Uh, you decide to apply to engineering school. You get in, you start learning things, you take all the first year, get through the weed out classes, you work an internship, you learn a ton about engineering, you graduate, and you get a job because you have this base level of competency, right? Like you've gone from this place where you didn't know anything about engineering to all of a sudden you know something. What we see with Jesus' kingdom is that it works the opposite way, right? When you're an engineer, the enemy to you being a good engineer is you not knowing what you're doing. In Jesus' kingdom, just admitting that you have no idea what you're doing is how you get what you're desperately longing for. All you have to do is acknowledge that you don't get it. All you have to do is acknowledge that you're dead in order to receive life. In Jesus' kingdom, you become good simply by acknowledging that you are not and looking to God's goodness. I recently heard a story uh, of this 19th century preacher with a heck of a name. His name was Brownlow North. Brownlow North. Uh, and North was converted to Christianity in his mid-40s. And he had lived a life that was an awful lot like the tax collector here. Um, he spent a lot of time drinking and partying and all that stuff. And at that time, in the 19th century, that was looked down upon big time. Uh, then after his conversion, um, he, he begins to share his faith. He begins to share how the Lord has saved him. And he actually has a lot of success doing it. And he eventually becomes an evangelist, a traveling preacher and evangelist. And then one day he's called to preach at this particular church. And so he's about to walk into the church to preach a sermon, which let me tell you, a little nerve-wracking, especially if it's a church where you don't know anyone. And so as he's walking in, a guy comes up to him and hands him a letter. And that's kind of a weird thing to do when someone's about to go preach, but okay. So he just stands there, and he reads the letter. And the first words of the letter say this. Brownlow North, you miserable hypocrite. Yikes, not a good start. And then the letter goes on to list just like a laundry list of all of the sins that Brownlow North had committed. It's clear that this person knows everything that he ever did. And then he ends the letter saying this, Now, you wretched hypocrite, you know every word of this letter is true. Will you, after reading it, dare to go into that pulpit and preach the gospel? And you can imagine how he must be feeling at that moment, right? Like someone had just like aired out all of your laundry, like you just don't know what's going to happen. And so he thought about it, and he, he decides that he's going to get up and preach anyways. And he heads up to the pulpit and he reads 1 Timothy 1.15, which says this. It says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. And he just lets it sit for a minute. And then right afterwards, he proceeds to tell this congregation that he's received a letter from someone, presumably someone who is in the congregation who knows everything that he ever did. 
And he says this, he says, I'll spare you the details, but all of it's true. Every last word. And more than this person knows, actually. It's true, I am a great sinner. He said, but you know what? Christ is a great savior. If he can save a sinner like Brownlow Moore, who can't he save? And then he goes on to preach. Can you imagine being there? I mean, this man who has just been set, I mean, laid low, acknowledges that he is safe, acknowledges that he is approved of by Jesus. See, Brownlow North understood that this upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom, he knew that the approval that he longed for, it did not come from having a perfect record. It came from Jesus in his place. So where can we look for the approval that we long for? We can, like Brownlow North and like this tax collector, we can look to God's goodness. We can look to God's goodness. But why do we have to look for God's goodness to receive approval? Why do we have to acknowledge that we're unworthy in order to receive approval? And I think two reasons at least that I can think of. Uh, the first, in God's eyes, we're all tax collectors. In God's eyes, we're all tax collectors. Now, how does that hit you when I say that? If you're anything like me, it, it's like you want to push back a little bit. Like, I mean, I get the sentiment, preacher man, like I'm supposed to be bad. I get it. Like I'm a sinner, all that stuff. But like, come on, I am not a tax collector. I'm not that bad. I mean, come on, ask anyone. I am so nice. I'm a really nice person. And that may be true, but I would ask you the question, why are you nice? Is it because you legitimately at every second want to love God and love your neighbor? Is it because you love the Lord your God with your whole heart? Or is it anything like, for me, I'm nice because I want people to like me? Or I'm nice because I want to avoid conflict? Or I'm nice because I want to control people, frankly? You see, in order to know we're approved, we have to admit how unworthy of approval we actually are. Our niceness doesn't count for anything. God demands perfection. So in God's eyes, we're all tax collectors. But also, we, we need to admit this because God wants to restore us to the approval that we were made for. He wants to restore us. You see, if we're convinced that we're not that bad, we're going to be crushed when we do something that's really bad. Or we're going to be constantly anxious, trying to keep up the facade that I'm a nice person, I'm a good person. And what God wants us to do is acknowledge that we're not. You see, if we're convinced that we're not that bad, we're going to have to work really hard to keep that up. And the good news is that we are not designed to live that way. And God doesn't want us to live that way. We're designed to have lasting approval. You see, the reason that Jesus came was not to pat us on the back for being really nice. The reason that Jesus came was to make sinners righteous. Jesus didn't come to approve of you for how good you are. He came to make you approvable. He didn't come to be a cheerleader for us in our moral endeavors. He came to be a substitute for us. He came so that he could provide the approval that we so desperately long for. So how do we put all this together? Uh, so we've seen kind of two different ways that we've seen that in our longing for approval, we can look to one of two places. 
We can, like the Pharisee, we can look to our own goodness. Or we can, like the tax collector, look to God's goodness. In closing, I just want to read you uh, the lyrics from a hymn that's really dear to my heart, and I think it captures this truth well. It's a hymn called Come Ye Sinners. It says, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners, Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. Friends, this is the good news of Jesus. Jesus says to us, come to me. You don't have to hide your sin. You don't have to hide your longing for approval. Right? So often when we long for approval, like we feel gross about the things that we do in order to get approval. Jesus doesn't tell us we're gross in our longing for approval. He says to us, you know what, you're right. You were designed for that. And I'm going to die for you so that you can have that. See, Jesus came into the world and lived a life that was completely approvable. He loved God and loved neighbor perfectly. And then he suffered and died. Why? He suffered and died so that he could take the penalty of all the things that we've done to try to earn God's approval. All the things we've done to try to fill ourselves he suffered and died for that. You see, we can live our lives without desperately seeking the approval of others because we have the lasting approval of God in Jesus. And when we place our trust in Jesus, the God of the universe says to us, you are everything. I delight in you. I know you completely, and I love you unconditionally. Friends, we are designed to hear that. And in Jesus, it's possible. So let's look to him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that um, in our longing for approval, you don't shame us. I know when I see the things that I do uh, to get other people's approval, I, it makes me hate myself. Um, but Lord, how sweet it is that you are not like uh, that you see us in the things that we do as we seek out approval, and, and you come to us and meet us in Jesus. Lord, you want to give us your approval as a gift. It's not something that we could earn. It's something that's given to us freely in Jesus. I pray for my friends here tonight that there are many of us who probably have never considered this before. Many of us who are probably right in the middle of trying desperately hard to live a life uh, that will make us feel like we're approved. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would meet us and show us uh, the beautiful, perfect life of Jesus and the beautiful, perfect death of Jesus in our place. And Lord, that, that we would see that that's the only life you're ever going to approve of. And if we place our faith in Jesus, it's ours.
All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it is our practice.